My name is David Yun, and welcome to my viewfinder. This is a podcast where I speak to photographers about why they shoot as opposed to what they shoot with. My hope is to produce inspiring content to get you out there looking at the world creatively. Each episode will end in a thought or project to help bring this to the fore, so make sure you get to the end and uh, interact with me. If you're interested in continuing this project with me, you can help me out by clicking subscribe uh, and leaving me a review on your podcast platform of choice. You can also find me on Instagram at my viewfinder podcast. Uh, I'm on Twitter at MVF podcast, or you can email me directly at mvfpodcast at gmail.com. Today's guest is Eric Donovan, professor of astrophysics at the University of Calgary and photographer. In this, the first part of two episodes, we're going to start with the intersection between art and science and how creativity is actually required both. There's an assumption that science and math are cold and calculating, robotic, but Eric believes the opposite is true. Not only that, but that living emotionally is the key to our success. Let's find out his thoughts here, and remember to stay to the end for some of my personal thoughts, reflections, and perhaps even a project. These are a little bit longer than usual, so let's just get right to it. What are the uh, surprising things that you might have? Opinions, surprising opinions you might have that uh, might be unpopular even. Well, I mean, it's un it's going to be unpopular to say this um, because I'm I am I am. You know, you probably classify me as a socialist. I'm, I'm, I, a pacifist, a socialist, somebody who abhors violence, and, and, and I've been working very hard in my life to, to get my biases about race and gender issues to really get those so that they are a thing of the past for me, and you know, and, and really try to try to help the world be a place where people. Where people are free to be themselves and supported in that, I agree with a lot of what Donald Trump says, and that's the thing I think people would find surprising. I detest him. I like I utterly detest him. I think they should throw him out of office with the Twenty Fifth Amendment. I think he's been an awful force, and I think part of the reason why he's 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 done as well, you know, if he had been just marginally more reasonable. I'm sure he would have won a second term. He was just so unrepentantly abhorrent, you know. And and the reason why he was so popular, he is so popular, is that a lot of what he says resonates with people. Globalization has hurt people who are at the lower end of the economic spectrum, and other people don't say that. And he says that um, people, a lot of people who have trouble economically. It's actually not their fault. The message from the left and from the center and from people who want to believe in this meritocracy is that if you're not doing very well, it's your fault, right? But for a lot of people, it's not their fault. For a lot of people, it is circumstances that have been put upon them by outside forces, and a lot of those times, it's globalization forces. And and Donald Trump says that, and people love him for it. It, it tells them it's not my fault. Right, and so when he says that, I think I don't. I hate the messenger, you know. But but if we don't if we don't acknowledge the negative impacts of globalization on people, I think we're in peril of 
Trump, 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 right? And then the other thing is, you know, I'll say something. My grandfather fought in World War One, and like all things, Trump takes these things too far. But my grandfather fought in World War One. I. I love my I loved my grandfather very dearly. He was he he was 17 years old when he signed up to, to go. Um, I can't imagine my 16 year old son fighting in the trenches in a year like that. That's like I try to try to imagine that. I try not to imagine that and try to imagine it at the same time. And that war was pointless. It was pointless. Like, and when Donald Trump said, why would I want to go and visit those graves of those dead US soldiers from World War One? Why would I want to visit a bunch of suckers? And people heard that. And what they hear is, is a terrible statement, a statement that that's about as politically incorrect a statement as one can make, especially in the US. Um, it's a statement that that is disrespectful of the men like my grandfather. At the same time, for much of my life, I have thought, why in God's name did people sign up for a war that was just a bunch of elitist people who were fighting over some land and six million people died for nothing? Like nothing. They, they there was there was a there was a front, that front moved around a little bit, and that's it. Like it was there was no morals, there was no values, there was nothing better about 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 the allies than the german side there was there was there was no there, there was no reason for that war and and the and so in some sense the people who went and laid down their lives for for that they laid down their lives for nothing which kind of makes them suckers right so i like so and so i heard once so 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 i find myself when donald trump says these things like like if you strip away his his crudeness and you strip away his 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 awful misogynistic and 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 narcissistic personality there's a reason why these things actually resonate with a lot of people and i find myself surprised by that my, my i'm surprised by 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 when i when i when he says something and i think yeah maybe so hmm. yeah i mean I, I i don't want this to be a political thing um it's interesting i think I've been spending a lot of time trying to understand the same thing. And um, the only thing that I, I'll get into <laughs> at the risk of this not becoming a photography thing is uh, this idea that uh, meritocracy is a, a left and centrist concept. Uh, the American dream is an American culture problem and uh, yeah, no, I mean, endemic I mean to you know, free market capitalism in general, um, whoever's holding the banner, I, that changes depending on whatever the political rhetoric of yeah. that moment is. Um, personally, the thing other than likely Donald Trump having dementia that offends me the most is um, I, I can't separate his privilege, his upbringing, his fraudulent life from what he's saying. And I think the whole thing is pandering. I also think, yeah, globalization, you know, this is the problem with politics and semantics. Globalization as a capital G word can be used as a weapon because, yeah, absolutely, different markets in different continents have a different market price for different services. Yeah. Um, if we really want to go down that rabbit hole and ask the, the horrible why question, I mean, that's very complex. You could actually ironically blame America for all of that. But... Uh, we don't have to because it's not important. The, the thing that is difficult for me to understand is what is the solution 
to that question. So if we want to, you know, correctly look at Amazon, look at the Chinese labor market, look at India, and say they're undercutting, but we do need to source from whatever whatever the arguments are. Um, this is the same way I feel. I'm also off, also often branded a communist or a socialist, but um, you know, and this is I think a human question which we haven't figured out. Um, you know, what is the right way to do it? Is there a right way to do it? And I think nationalist sentiments, this idea that we close doors and rebuild a personal economy has failed. It just doesn't exist anymore. So how do we embrace the reality and move forward from it? I, I don't, I don't know. It's not working, whatever we're trying. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, again, I like that we, sh we shouldn't, we shouldn't go down this path, I don't think, but I, sure. I'm sure that you and I, I'm virtually certain that you and I would probably agree on just about everything. Um, I, 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 I mean, I, I, I don't know what the right model is, but I, I, I think at the heart of it, it's been 40 years or more, 40 years, yeah, 40 years since Reagan and Thatcher, it's been 40 years of an erosion of government revenue, right? And so the, there's a philosophy which people who have a lot of money have managed to successfully uh, push on the population which is that it is not good for the government to have revenue, that taxes are bad, right? And, and the problem is that if you look at the world 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, this is the world that, that put a person on the moon and the world that built the, you know, the interstate system in the US and the world that built the best infrastructure that the world's ever seen at that time. And, and tax rates were higher. And, you know, and so the idea that that people in the U.S. have to pay $50,000 a year tuition to go to university, I, I mean, that's ridiculous. Right? And where the Canadian model and the Swedish model and Norwegian model or, or, or the German model are way better, right? Way, way, way better for people. And so I think I think that erosion of tax ta of, of, the, of the culture of taxing people um, has not been good for society. And the other thing is that that you know I, I i don't like the fact that everything is about money right this is what it really comes down to i mean it, it comes down to you know we've got global warming and we've got these social problems and we've got you know systemic racism and we've got all this but this guy will make things cheaper for me this guy's better for my bottom line right and that's that's a problem right it, it, it speaks to people being raised wrong I think uh, it's the uh, snake eating its tail metaphor. And I think yeah. um, I read uh, or maybe I saw in a TED talk, but they were talking about how what you're talking like the, the characterization of uh, the correct human life has been so negatively affected, actually predating like, uh, with the industrialization paradigm that efficiency should be related to income uh, or um, uh, personal Fulfillment should be related to how much you can earn or how much output you can uh, produce. Um, but I don't know. I mean, this this will be a lead-in. I mean, I think it's interesting to think about creativity, arts, uh, philosophy, politics, just the human experience um, opening up from this uh, <laughs> inflammatory opinion, uh, you know, this rhetoric, because... Uh, like I want to be, I want to be really clear on the record. Like I want Trump gone. I I detest the person. 
I, I, I mean, privilege, you name it. Like he's, he's, you know, he, he's, he's, he's a bizarre character to be the person who's, who's representing himself as looking out for the masses. <laughs> it's oh. a very, very strange thing. My Viewfinder is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. If you're looking for more Albertan podcast content, check out their website, albertapodcastnetwork.com. Here's a brief message from one of our two sponsors today. Even now, good advice is within reach. Your financial situation today, tomorrow, or this very hour is why ATB is here. ATB will listen and help with the knowledge and solutions you need right now. Why? Because ATB was built to help Albertans. For more information, visit atb.com. We're always comparative. I think it's part of, I was talking about this with my wife. I think it's part of human nature that we have to differentiate between things. Like I can't look at, like there's a piece of paper on my desk. I can't look at that without having a bias about whether this paper is important to me, whether I'm noticing and distracted by the fact that it's orange. Uh, it's just how I think we have to categorize things. And, you know, going into arts, creativity, expression, physics, all of this stuff, it is it is interesting. Like, how do you, are we supposed to separate ourselves from it? And how do you make decisions uh, that are constructive for yourself? So you have a career in physics, but now you're leaning into creative endeavors and art. I think they're actually intertwined personally. I, I studied and failed physics as my first undergrad uh, major, declared major. So um, I don't know anything about physics. I've read uh, very introductory bullshit, uh, but I did have that uh, connection. You know, I think you have a curious mind and you want to understand how things work. So, yeah. So, so I, I mean, like, I, I think first of all, um, you know, I want to be clear. I, like, I failed physics in grade eleven in in at my one of my high schools in Toronto. People, a lot of times, people fail physics because physics is not taught. I mean, if you're if you were at, at in, in first year, chances are you were being taught by somebody who understood physics. In high school, which sets one up for university physics. In high school, at least when I was a high school student, my impression was the people who were teaching me physics didn't understand it, hmm. and. And physics is hard if you don't understand kind of kind of the the essence of it, the simplicity of it, right? You know, and and physics the 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 the, the better you know physics, the simpler it becomes, right? And that's that's certainly very true. And but I would say that say that that you know I I I would say that that people who are scientists writ large, and and you know, and and I mean engineers and architects, you know, you know. Areas where people often associate that with what what people would have called left brain thinking back in the '80s, right? Um, you know, which is which is kind of rational thinking. You know, it, it's not often that people would associate creativity with those things out there. You know, but but I mean, basically, anybody who succeeds in science and engineering, in really succeeds in science or engineering or or architecture or any number of these 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 areas probably is being creative on a daily basis in their work. And it, it's, and, and I, and I have found that I, my mom was an artist um, and I always felt that I had no real artistic gifts, no real artistic abilities at, at all. And, and that, that I wasn't really an artistic person. And what I found over the last six or seven years 
is that I'm actually fascinated by by art and I'm fascinated by the creative process and I'm fascinated by how similar it feels to sit down and try to create a visual art piece out of like from just to start from to start from deciding I'm going to take a photograph and have that photograph be at the core of a visual art piece and to work that through to having that visual art piece that process feels identical to the process of starting with wanting to explore an idea in my field and carrying that through to making some statement that advances knowledge in that field the two feel very it's very it's very very similar i mean you know and i and i read this i read this paper recently by um i, I don't actually don't know who it was by but it was in a, an academic paper that's in a book called creativity and it's and it, it's it's just a a selection of papers that are dealing with the with the concept of creativity and it's in that paper that paper is about the relationship between art and science and in that paper they say that there there's a number of things that artists the people we call artists and the people we call scientists have in common and one of those things is that people who are artists and people who are scientists they tend to be what we call polymaths which are people who are interested in a lot of things and another thing that they say in this is that an understanding, sorry, a, a, a strong interest in science is a predictor of success for an artist. And a strong interest in the arts is a predictor of success for a scientist. The people who are interested in the arts tend to be better scientists than people who aren't. And people who are interested in science tend to be better artists than people who aren't. I found that really interesting. Hmm. Doesn't make sense, certainly, for me to boil that down into single concepts. But uh, the word that pops in my mind is uh, curiosity. I think um, maybe even flexibility. I, I I don't know, for example, c celebrity physicists, and I don't really pay attention to celebrity artists either. Uh, I kind of get caught up in my own head. But like you said, one thing that I'm pulling out of all of this is is this assumption i mean it may be affected by romanticism that you know when you speak to creative people um you know if you speak to a great photographer you can have these conversations like we start off in politics we don't we don't sit here and talk about um we can talk about the nature of photography itself and and hopefully we will do so um, but all of my conversations so far have evolved around everybody's personal passions and um, interests, uh, which either start through photography or end up in photography. But, you know, just because we're speaking to photographers. But uh, my suspicion is if I start, I mean, I did this a little bit with my past podcast. When I speak to a painter, um, they don't read just books about uh, the texture of different types of acrylic paint. Uh, many of them spend all their time on Twitter. <laughs> Or on, uh, you know, researching scientific uh, things or watching TED Talks or, you know, um, even the idea of a polymath is kind of fun. I, I've been challenged recently about my own romantic ideals of idealisms of uh, what it means to be an artist, you know, this um, this idea of uh, it being intuitive and, and being something about talent instead of intentional and structured um, particularly in this era, I mean, there may have been a time like when um, when photography is invented and you, you take your first snapshot. Historically and retrospectively, we will consider that art because there's just something new. I mean, it's science, photography more than any other 
art, I think, is couched in science, at least science as we understand it today. Um, but it is fascinating how modern, like I used to rag on modern art, contemporary, I still do. Like I don't want to read an essay to understand an image, but it turns out that that is where we're at as a culture. That if, like, because, you know, the proliferation of Instagram and Twitter and, and just instantaneous experiences and they disappear, they lose their value. Um, you know, maybe what I've gotten wrong, um, and I, I kind of want I wrote down these notes. You know, when you're doing scientific research, um, my understanding of it is whatever the base theory and wherever it comes from, that the idea of experimentation and research is not to make yourself correct about it, but to test whether it can be correct and be open-minded enough to understand what results actually represent. And what I've read is a lot of the historical discoveries have come from a creative minds who are, don't get stuck in that rigor where they're so focused on an end product that they're missing what's actually happening in front of them. Right. So, so you're, you're, in tr you're in trouble in science, like, like, and, and all of us, you know, there, there are like any, like everything, there are people who are, who are naturally better and naturally not as good at being scientific. Right. You know, you know, being, 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 you know, like, like doing things like a scientist would do. And I would say I'm a, I'm, I'm the equivalent of a, in science, I would be the equivalent of a, a locally known, provincially known artist, you know, so, so I, I mean, a, a George Weber, a, you know, like, 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 so, so that people, people in Europe don't know who these people are. Right? They're not talking about their work. They're not wrestling with it. And people, you know, all, you know, people in Europe don't know who I am. And, you know, people in my, people in my field, which is space physics, of which there's probably only a thousand people in the entire planet who, who are in that area. They know who I am, but they're like my local community. They're like a local community of artists. Like, you know, it's just, it's just that it's extended around the world because because of the, the nature of the of, of the work. But people who aren't space physicists don't know who I am. Like somebody at U of A who's not a space physicist doesn't have a clue who I am, right? And somebody at U of L who isn't a space physicist doesn't have a clue who I am, right? But I'm very successful. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm employed, I publish, you know, I, I, I've, I've had a few little discoveries to my name, but that's, you go up to the next level, right? Where you get people who are the equivalent of nationally known artists not internationally known but nationally known you know the people who at the canada council there what's that person up to and the people you know they like 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 um and I, I don't know of good examples of that but um what's his name alex janviev um you know would be would be an example um you know of that where, where somebody who's who's really well known all across the country um janvier alex janvier i think his name is and and then and, and there's the equivalent of that in science where there's people who are who are known you know for their work kind of very broad very broadly but you know and then and then you go to the top level where you have the people who are the equivalent of the georgia o'keefe's and the picassos and stuff like that and and so i'm kind of like two tiers down from that you know in in, in my view but one thing that scientists all have in common if you're if you're is that we have ideas we tend to like our ideas and we'd like to see them. And there's a natural human tendency to want to be right. Right. And that tendency moves one away from the objectivity that is fundamentally required in science. Right. And so 
what what you said is absolutely correct. I mean, what I have to do when I'm doing my work is I have to remember I'm trying to find out whether or not this idea is correct. I'm not trying to find, I'm not trying to show that it's correct. And those are fundamentally different mindsets. And, and, and a good scientist, it's very easy to stay in that. I have an idea. I wonder if it's right. Right. You know, as opposed to, I have this idea. Now I have to show I'm right. And that's not scientific thinking. And the first one is, and these are the, and, and I would say that's the, 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 the one difference, the one critical difference between what we call art and what we call science, because, because what we call science is what I call convergent. And that means that if you're a physicist, and I'm a physicist and, and you have an, you, and, 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 and we're studying the same thing, but you have an idea of what's going on. And I have a different idea of what's going on that we would agree that there's progress when our ideas converge, that science is convergent. That means that we have this fundamental belief that there's a right answer to this question and everybody wants to get to that answer and so no matter where you start if you're studying something that eventually you will all end up in the same place and what we traditionally call art i would say is divergent and by that i mean i mean you know you could take and rip a page out of a out of a out of a an old coffee table book right you, you know and and then and then a hundred different artists visual artists could have that same page and then take that and transform that into a visual art piece by doing something with that image. And what you're going to end up with is a hundred different things. So even if you start from the very same thing, you don't get the same thing, right? And so, so art, what we call art tends to diverge and create all these things that are all by the, by definition unique and science we're, we're converging on a few truths, you know, and, and, and that's, but otherwise, I, 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 otherwise, my feeling, and the more I get to know about art, my feeling is that that the activity of being a scientist and the activity of being an artist is otherwise the same thing. Well, let's, yeah, I mean, let's push that a little bit. If if we have two, if we have these two large, um, I don't know, philosophical differences, directional differences, so. One as uh, so the scientific method, um, although that has specific definitions, so we'll see if this holds up. But if the scientific method is couched in a belief um, that there are capital T truths, I mean, now we're getting into ontology, but that there's a capital T truth and a capital E explanation of some said phenomenon. And then we have uh, this idea of art being this proliferation of independent expression and um, and maybe a refutation that there's a single right way that it's there is no correct way to paint a sunset. There are uh, a myriad and perhaps an infinite number of experiences. I mean, I don't I don't know if that's actually true, but this this is maybe if those two things are couched in in or if those two things are directionally opposed. Um, how do you personally? Uh, come from science and get interested in arts so there's um well, like what what was it for you that that broke or, or interested you in in exploring two directionally opposite things well so so again um 
you know, the, the interesting thing is you, you know, art, like art, art can make sense, right? So if you, if you look at, um, work that people do a lot of, a lot of work that a lot of people do on, on the Anthropocene, right? You know, as you look at Bertinsky and I, I find Bertinsky's work makes sense. It feels like I'm looking at a documentary pieces made by a scientist who's a bit, a bit dramatic, I think, but a science, you know, you know, you know, you know like, like that, that work, I understand the work, I understand its point and it makes sense and it's logical. But a key thing about art is that it, it, there is no requirement that it makes sense. And particularly contemporary art often doesn't make any sense, you, you know, and, 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 um, and I find it, I find it interesting because people, people will stand up and like, I've seen, I've, I haven't seen that many artist talks, but I've probably seen 20, 25 in my life. And, and I did, I actually did a residency at the BAMP Center back in 2018 for a couple of weeks with a group of artists and writers um, who were exploring concepts around the Anthropocene. And while we were there, I saw a bunch of artist talks just because I was at the BAMP Center and I guess that's what you do in the evening or whatever, right? You know, and, and, um, and one of the things that struck me about this was that, that the artist often is talking about what they're talking about as though it makes sense but actually it doesn't make any sense right you know and, and and i'm not judging the art i'm just and i'm not also not judging the artist i'm saying that i saw this this work by this woman who who wanted to explore the fraser river and and to capture that in her art and what she did was she went every day for a year or whatever like every day for like a year and she tied herself <laughs> on a with a rope right to a, a like a, a wooden pier in the Fraser by Abbotsford and then went and just sort of floated around in the current for an hour or two and then she collected mud while she was doing this and she did things and then she she used that to make these pieces which which you know and 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 in all of this like I like I I what what I heard was she was describing a process I went out in the river and I did this and and I then took the mud and I put it over the, the, the this, this this special kind of paper, and then I dried it in the sun. And this is my piece. And when and so as a process, it made sense. It's like okay, well that's that's a that's a process. But the idea that she was exploring the Fraser River and something about the Fraser River in particular was lost on me, right? You know, and 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 I couldn't translate that to her pieces, which I quite liked, but you know I, I couldn't. You know, and, and I often find that with contemporary art, when the contemporary artist is describing what they're doing, and and, and it's interesting because you know I I actually I started out not loving contemporary art, and and I've now I've, 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 I'm now a person who doesn't like classical older art, you know, I, I, with the exception of people like George O'Keefe. There's a few who whose work I really love for a variety of reasons. But generally speaking, I find, you know, I don't like, I don't like the group of seven stuff anymore. Right. I just, I find it, I find it kind of boring and, and, and sort of staid and conservative and, and, you know, you know, like that's just me. And then I, and then I, but I love, I, I really love contemporary art. I find it funny and fun and, and fresh. And then, but then there's, there's, there's stuff that, that, that goes too far. Right. And I was at the MoMA in San Francisco one time a few years back and there was these there were these big frame prints um you know drawings on the wall and it was graphite on paper number one 
graphite on paper number two, graphite on paper number three. And each one was a circle, hand-drawn circle. And I remember I was standing there and I'm looking at it going, and I, and I just, I said out loud and there was only one other person in the room with me and, and I didn't know her. And I, I said, yeah, I can't, I'm not there with this. This doesn't feel like art to me. And the woman who was there, she goes, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to say anything, but I'm thinking the same thing. And so sometimes I, I find myself, I look at something and I think, yeah, no, right. And, and it's not about the quality of it. It's about, I don't think there's any investment on the part of the artist in that piece. Like it, it just feels like something somebody, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel, you know, yeah. So I don't, I, you know, but I, but I actually, I mean, I, I love contemporary art and I find myself in my photography. I like, I, I mean, I, I, I got into photography and the reason why I got into photography was because I was, my, my marriage was falling apart. Right. And I, and I was, it was back in 2014 ish. I started to realize that this is not working. This is not. Like I, I'm, I'm certain I was depressed and I would go for long walks every day, like long walks. And then I, I got a $1,000 research prize from the University of Calgary, uh, which I could do. I could buy something for myself out of the $1,000. And and I decided I'm buy a camera. So I bought a camera and it was a, you know, like a point and shoot, not, not really a point and shoot, but it had, it was one of the ones where the lens is built into the camera body. And it was, so it was a very good one of those. And I just went around I, and I went out while I was walking around, I just started taking lots and lots and lots of photos. And I found that the photos were reflecting my mood and how I felt and, and they were helping me think about small things, right? So I, I could, I could, I would go to the same place over and over and over and over again and take photographs of the same things over and over and over and over again. But there were different photographs and and then, you know, if you pan forward, you know, you know, I, I think I, I just started to, to get, I would say more and more creative and to kind of head off into the space where I'm taking images and then working a lot with them to make them into something else. And then, and also now starting to get into a bit of, a little bit of social commentary too. And again, that's said as somebody who's never had a show and like, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you, you know, you see my stuff on, on Instagram. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. So I'm, I'm just trying to uh, get an idea of the mindset. You know, it, it is an interesting thing uh, going out. So I have a similar experience as far as getting my camera out of a midlife sort of crisis and, and kind of finding myself uh, stuck pretty deep in a rut. And, um, and yeah, my I uh, I used my outlet uh, by buying a camera as well. I think it was 2013 or 2014. And um, you know, uh, just thinking about this sort of scientific process at the at the level of um, designing uh, an experiment or a structured approach around some hypothesis versus the first time like a kid pours vinegar onto baking soda, um, and you know, the first time I picked up my camera, I, I had a similar experience. I, I didn't have a, um, a thought process around what I wanted it to be. It was, there was no intentionality in a final product. It was uh, uh, intuitive, emotional, um, sometimes just strictly out of boredom. I, I, you know, it's hard to encapsulate it in words, but it was, uh, yeah, it was an outlet. It was something that I needed to do uh, to get away from, I guess, myself or my situation. Whether that's healthy, we'll, we'll invite a psychiatrist to come in next time to talk about the nuances of that. But um, 
But what I do find, uh, and I think you, you're talking about the same thing, is um, if one continues to pursue any practice, in our case, photography, um, in a curious sense, um, so it's not good enough anymore to just take snapshots, let's say post them on Instagram or, or hoard them, and then just disappear. We um, want to do something with them. So for you and I, I think uh, manipulating images uh, became a particular sort of form. Um, other people want to either delve into a specific type of photography and create narratives. So uh, whether they're journalistic or commercial or uh, street photography or wh whatever it is. I mean, there are so many nuances in any field. You know, it, it becomes interesting to start looking at, you know, don't you have a, a th like a, th a theory that you're testing out? I mean, there's there's got to be a driving um, idea that helps you to continue to pursue manipulate. I, you gave that talk at Exposure Studio about utilizing scientific data and trying to visualize it. Um, that's vastly different than going on walks and taking 60 pictures of the same flower by the bench. Um, you know, what was it that changed for you? And what drives you to continue to do this, to be involved, let's say, in Exposure Studio, or to be involved in this conversation, or to be on Instagram uh, at all, uh, to, to have that visibility, to get feedback? Um, what's changed? Uh, because uh, there's a structure. There's, 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 a, there's a lot in that question, right? And I, I you know, and, and I, because um, I struggled with, I struggled with this. Like one, one of the things that, that, you know, I've, I've done two of those exposure um, portfolio reviews, and and one of the things I struggle with is that this concept of coherent body of work, okay? And because I, what I've done is I've kind of used photography to sort of explore how I'm feeling and where I'm at. And, and that has led to kind of like, I have, I have, it, it's led to incoherence in my body of work. Okay. And it's funny because in science, for instance, like if, if you look at what I do in my research life, I study what's called the magnetosphere, which is the region of space around the earth. I take images of the Aurora because the Aurora are produced by processes in the magnetosphere. And so I've turned the Aurora into basically an instrument that I'm using to remote sense the magnetosphere. And I have stayed on theme um, for more than 20 years and have built a massive coherent body of work and a coherent body of images that now people all over the world are using. And so, and so I think, and I think that coherent body of work is absolutely necessary for success. And, and I don't have it in photography. Right. And that's the, and that's the thing that I'm, that I'm missing right now. Right. You know, and, and because, because I, I and I, and I, you know, and I, when I did the, the, the portfolio review the first time people were kind to me and, you know, but I was, I, you know, and, and, and I think people saw something that had some, some spark or something there. Uh, but then I did it the second time, which was last year. And I think people saw a lot more, but there was still like, three groups of photographs if you see if you see what i mean and 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 the one thing i will say is that there was one set of photographs that i bought that i brought and one of my reviewers he he sat he, he looked at them and he said wow these are the first these are the first images today that i've seen that have made me feel 
and there's there's this uh, um, thread that I've that I've that I've started, which is which is taking photographs of of people, and and then taking away almost all of the information from the image, right? So that so that by processing the image, so that you can kind of see that it's a person, you can see something about it. You can see that it's a nude. You can see there's there's something you can see about this this you know in this photograph, but it's more like it like a, and I and I think that's where I'm where I'm trying to work right now in that space, which is to convey a feeling with the photograph, and it's a very very tough thing for me because like I can't I can't um, it doesn't work for instance for me like I've tried uh, taking photos of of people who I don't know. And it generally doesn't work because I'm not feeling anything. You know, so if I so if I take a photo of somebody I know and that somebody who I'm close with, then there's feeling involved in that. And that comes out somehow in in the photographic in the, in the in the, in, in the piece that results from these photographs. If that makes sense, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I I, you know, and, I, and I'd be happy to show you some of them. I mean, it's just, it's just, um, they, they tend to be better when they're printed. And, and I've, I've taken to printing them on some, some strange paper, which also adds to their allure, I think. And they were uniformly like, I think, you know, there was about seven or eight of those photographs. And then my five reviewers from last year, they all loved them. They all were like, oh, there's something here. Like, this is, this is cool. And, um, you know, it's it's a funny thing because I don't know. There's a, there's an artist in Lethbridge named Mary Cavanaugh, and she does she has she had a show this past year in in the Founders Gallery called Daughters of Uranium, and she it's really I mean it's really a fascinating show and one that I was very interested in because it was it was about it was kind of around a lot of stuff from Los Alamos, a lot of stuff from from the Trinity explosion, the first atomic explosion at, at Alamogordo, and she had pieces of trinitite which is this material which was is formed out of sand under a, a, an atomic blast and 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 she had like really it was I, I was i was actually very fascinated by by her show and she was talking to me about her processes and she's not doing science like th that's not what she's doing but that being said she wants a lot of what she does to be reproducible Meaning, if she she tries experiments like with 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 um, making glass things out of out of glass that has uranium infused in it, I didn't really understand this, but but it's just beautiful green glass, and she makes these beautiful um, pieces. But then, when she was describing her process, I what I was imagining was that there's a lot of notes and a lot of record keeping and a lot of you know, and, and people who work with ceramics, people who do glazes. You know, they, they take very, very meticulous notes often about what they're doing because nothing more frustrating than trying 20 different things. And this is the thing I want and I don't know how to make it again. Right. You know, and and so I think a lot of the tools that we use in science, people naturally use in art because, you know, you, so you're kind of learning how to do something and you have to and you build on successive trials of that. And it's ultimately it's not a lot different than a kid pouring vinegar on baking soda you know and a lot of science isn't isn't different than that right i mean like what will happen if i do this do you think i'm struck by the concept of rationalism so do you think that you can characterize human nature uh for yourself do you think that 
um, we are rational at our core or irrational at our core. Because what I hear and what you're talking about is this interesting schism. I, I think there's a quote, um, you'll probably know it better than me, but Albert Einstein talks about God. And, uh, you know, there is this um, projection, a stereotype that uh, scientists, mathematicians, and people that are in pure uh, rational theoretical spaces are these automaton robots devoid of any emotion. And I think that the opposite's true. But when you talk about convergence and divergence, and we talk about art, um, it makes me suddenly think of a career. I mean, I, I'm sorry that I'm going to characterize you, but it makes me think of a career in rational pursuit uh, now requiring a balancing in a spiritual pursuit in something that is going to resonate something personal for you, an emotional release. But um, I don't know if that's... I mean, I'll be, I'll be really clear about this. I, like I, I, there's, like I've, re I've read a lot, a lot about the scientists who did the work that, because physics changed. Physics changed in 19, in the early part of the 19, 1900s. It changed a lot. And what happened was scientists in the latter half of the of the 19th century were showing that there were limits to the, the understanding of the world and the way the world worked that a lot of the basic physics that people had presumed was correct wasn't correct that there were fundamental problems with what happens when objects move fast or what happens when objects are very small what happens like you know there, there were fundamental limits that we weren't that the, 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 the physics just didn't have right and Einstein came along at the right time. He was a brilliant person. And he and this large group of people, actually, who rewrote the laws of physics from 1900 to probably the 1940s. And a lot of those people are some of the most interesting people I've ever read about. And they are, you know, fine Richard Feynman, for instance, or, or Albert Einstein himself, or Lise Meitner, or, um, you know, you know, Werner Heisenberg and and Erwin Schrodinger and all these people. And they were brilliant, they were creative, they were philosophical, deeply philosophical. Um, they were, if you look at, if you look at Feynman, not Feynman, but if you look at um, Oppenheimer, I mean, I think at his core, he was trying to make war impossible, right? You know, and, and so these were, these were, these were people who had lofty goals and vision and creativity. And I, you know, and so I, I, I would not say that I would not describe science as a rational pursuit. And I, and I, I honestly, I think if you're, if you're not in love with science, you're not in love with physics. Don't be a physicist, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's actually, it, it's like I, I, I can imagine many jobs where you can be good at that job, where you just think that job should be done. And that job serves your life very well because it makes you a good living. And but that being that loving it is irrelevant, you know. But physics ain't it. I mean, if if you if you want to be a physicist, if if you don't, if because it's hard. It's a, it's it's a hard vocation, and you have to learn a lot in order to to be able to contribute. And and one of the things is like I'm teaching a, a third year course right now, and I'm delving into the material and deeply and. And it strikes me every day, it strikes me how much I love this stuff. Like I just love, I love the way it fits together. I love 
the way that you can come at things from a mathematical point of view or from a stating some obvious physical facts point of view and, and kind of get the same thing. And you can use math to inform the physics and physics to inform the math. And there's this giant playground to move around in to, to kind of do stuff that's interesting. And I found that what I have found is that maybe maybe the best way to say it is that my photography and my trying to do my photography has shown me how how science is not rational, right? That, that I've that I've that, that, that it really that the the only difference between trying to do something in art and trying to do something in science is that in science it has to make sense and it has to be objective. But they're otherwise they're they're very 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 similar and so and so I yeah I mean and and the thing is that I don't, I don't it's funny because because rationalism is scary to me you know I I I, I mean I'm, I genuinely believe that if if people made decisions in the world if people were well balanced and grounded and they made decisions based on feelings that the world would be way better off. Than making decisions based on rationale, you know that that um, you know somehow rationalism. Like I, I, I like let me backtrack a little bit and say that I, I one time heard this guy interviewed on the Oprah Network, interviewed by Oprah when I was traveling in the U.S. one time, and he was the person who who had developed. He and another person had developed and were teaching course called the science of happiness and it's either at Yale or Harvard I'm not sure which but it doesn't matter it's Yarvard you know it's a you know one of those two and they said they, they started this course because they were interested in the concept they, they were two psychologists whatever they, they were and they they were they started this based on the idea that they feel our society has it wrong that we our whole society is set up so that you become successful and then you will be happy. So go to university, get an ability to make a living, get a house, get a car, get an income, you know, and, and then start building up wealth. And then you'll be happy and you'll start working on happiness. And they said that that they felt and they that they had scientific evidence to, to support this, that this was in terms of the if the objective is to be happy, that this was not a good approach and that they felt that people should work on being happy and that paradoxically so that so that so that the one thing they, they said the one thing that that like success correlates with a lot of things but what it doesn't correlate with is happiness so the idea that successful people are happier than less successful people is apparently scientifically demonstrably garbage however People who become happy, people who are happy and happy from their youth actually tend to be more successful. And so that they felt that we turned it around and that we put the cart before the horse and put success before happiness. Whereas not only if you work on happiness first, you achieve the objective of being happy, but you also are actually likely to be more successful than you would have been otherwise. And, and so they started teaching this course and, and it's now the most popular course at whichever university it's at. And they said it's really surprised them because they said they have a very jaded student population, people who want to, who are going to Harvard to become lawyers or going to Harvard to become doctors or going to Harvard, it's all about marks and, and getting there fast and making the most money. And that that, that, that that population is also really hungry for this message about happiness. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I think 
I think if people were happy and people were making decisions based on emotion, then we wouldn't have global warming as a problem. We wouldn't have war. We would have like, like that, that, that we would, because, you know, I mean, if, if I, if I'm happy and I value being happy and I'm making decisions as a CEO, which are polluting the lakes and driving up the temperature of the earth. Like I'm, you know, if I respond to my feeling about that, my feeling about that is it's disgusting and it disgusts me and, and, and I'm disgusting myself by adding to that. Whereas I can rationalize that I'm the CEO and I have a fiduciary duty to make money for my shareholders. And that's my responsibility here. And objectively, I have to put my feelings aside and do this, you know, and, and you're right in both cases, but the outcome is better in the, the case I described, right? The, the, the outcome itself. And so, and so I don't think rationalism is, you know, I think people, people tend to be rational or emotional. I, I'm very feeling driven. In all my decisions, I don't, you know, I drive a lot of my colleagues crazy because I don't sit down and make a matrix and, you know, figure and, and put points in and everything else. I just say, this feels better. I'm going to do this. Yeah, that's a long answer to your question. All right. Let's talk about polymaths. By definition, a polymath is a person of a wide ranging knowledge or learning. It's a bit abstract. It's interesting to think about defining people by only one aspect of their life. This assumption that a photographer, for example, only cares about their camera and the quality of their exposure is, uh, frankly, kind of insulting. What drives art and creativity is dimension and depth. And how can we lay claim to either if we aren't interested in everything around us? So I have to ask you, um, what books and interests do you have that are not photography related? Have you read something recently on science or sociology or, I don't know, bookbinding? Do you craft? Do you dance? Play Baccarat? I don't know. This week, my challenge for you is to take a peek at something besides your camera that you're passionate about, and then let me know how this does or may in the future influence your creativity. Here's another message from one of our two sponsors today. Today, I want to talk to you about another podcast in our Alberta Podcast Network family. It's called Anticulture. This is a podcast that seeks to challenge and reestablish our view on what culture and identity really mean. The true culture of an individual and their lives is only found when we take the time to hear what they have experienced from their own point of view. Coming from a mixed background and having experienced different cultures worldwide, Josiah started this show to reestablish the concept of culture that we have developed by even subconsciously labeling those around us before we hear their full stories. You can find Josiah's podcast, Anticulture, at albertapodcastnetwork.com, on any podcast streaming platform around you, or you could check out his website, josiahpodcast.com, that's J-O-S-I-A-H podcast.com.